Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. How are we today? Good. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. After the service, I hang out down here somewhere. Come and find me. Say hi. I'd love to meet you. It is New Series Sunday. We're going to spend the next eight weeks and a couple chapters in Romans. And I'm just going to give it to you right up front. Our big idea is pretty simple, but pretty profound and incredibly important. And it has something to do with what we start with each and every Sunday. So we come together on Sunday mornings, we try our best to recognize and realize that this space where we worship God should order the rest of our weeks, not the other way around. We recognize that this space, we are called to live into the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that's different than most other influences in our life. We say each week that the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We live in a world that tries to find the fault in others before asking where our faults might be. And so we start this morning by praying this prayer, and really our first two verses in Romans are going to unpack this idea a little bit. But we're just going to start by simply asking God to be with us, and we're going to ask that the Spirit who's with us now might teach us, might convict us, might give us clarity around where we see the goodness and beauty of Jesus that's worth worshiping. So I'm going to pray. I'll ask that you pray if you're comfortable, and then I'm going to ask you to pray for me that, that I might do a good job showing us what God wants to teach us this morning. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. There's lots of places we could be. There's many things we could be doing, but we are here to worship a God who's worthy. This morning, I pray that we remember that. Maybe we didn't come in realizing how worthy God was. Maybe we came in begrudgingly. God takes them all, loves them all, and he's good to all. So Holy Spirit, this morning, as we worship, reset our priorities around what's good and what's worthy of our priorities. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and ask the Holy Spirit this morning to speak to your spirit in a way that you need to hear. Now, see, pray for me. As we walk through this text, we collectively see what God has us to see together as his community, as followers of Christ together. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. So if you've been here for any period of time, you've probably heard me talk about my college experience at the Moody Bible Institute. I was institutionalized for four years and I made it through the other side, everybody. All right. It wasn't the best four years of my life. You know, you kind of sold this bill of goods that college is going to be the happiest and best for you. And I got there and it was just not for lots of reasons. Most of them, I'm sure my fault. I just didn't find that place for me personally to be extremely loving or kind. It was extremely judgmental and difficult. It's kind of resonated with some of my story and how I felt about the church then and carried forward with me that God's repairing and restoring now through this place that I love. And I remember vividly, I was a senior, and so I'd, I'd made it a little while. My first two years at Moody, I had a different roommate every semester, 
and not because I'm a bad roommate, I am a joy. They not only left my room, they left the school. One by one, like, I can't do this anymore. And they left, right? I mean, I was like, what am I doing here? Again, mostly my baggage. I do not want to put this on my school. But uh, I finally made it through my senior year, and it looked like I was going to make it against really all the odds. And I remember at that point I was pretty jaded, um, and I really didn't think that place was a place of love. I had my good and close friends, and one of them was very happy at Moody, and one of them was thriving at Moody, and one of them was well-liked by all these other kids at Moody, to the extent when some people found out that he was one of my good friends, they said, really, are you sure? <laughs> and it's fine. Again, I had baggage. But I remember talking about the school in a way that probably wasn't positive and, and how it was unloving. And, and this dude looked at me, and I'll never forget this. He said, hey man, you know that you're talking about this place like they're unloving and judging, but you've been the exact same way for them for the last three years. And I thought, huh. I wonder why. I wonder why it's so easy for us to see the sin of others over the sin of our own selves. I wonder why it's so hard for us to look inwardly and so much easier to look outwardly. It's not just a problem that we have in the church. It's a problem we have in our culture now. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we had a conversation about politics and the political divide, and in 40 minutes, we solved it. Yay, everybody. Um, but there's a couple numbers that stuck out with me that right now, right now, over half of both Democrats and Republicans, it doesn't matter which one you are, over half of Democrats or Republicans think that the other side of the aisle is morally worse than they are. It means they just don't think they have bad policies. They think they're bad people. <laughs> Things that you are irreprehensible morally. It goes beyond the we have a different political opinion too. You're just bad people and that's why you vote that way. One number I shared that stuck with me as well was that over the last two decades, over the last two decades, we've seen a 400% rise in animosity between the left and the right, the Democrats and the Republican. I think what I'm getting at here is we live in this culture that so easily points out why others are wrong without asking the question if we're ever right or wrong to begin with. And in the church, you know what that does? It breaks down trust, <laughs> If we're so easy to call it the sin in others, and societally when people look at us and they see that we're not perfect too, which by the way is why this place exists, is because we're not perfect. When they see that, they don't trust us anymore because we aren't very good at saying we have room to grow. We're really good at saying you have a lot more than I do. There's a study every single year that Gallup puts out. They call it their um, annual survey on America's institutional confidence and honesty ratings for professionals. And, and, and what they found this year, this year in 2022, was that both the church and pastors saw their lowest rating in terms of how the public trusts us, Christians or not. They said it dropped five points from last year, um, and the church pastors did, and the church suffered a six-point fall in 2022. Currently, only 31% of Americans say they have quite a lot or a great deal of trust or confidence in the church, and 14% express a great deal of confidence in pastors. My point is simply this. We are really good at pointing out other people's sin, and when we still have sin, it makes people not trust us. So my question is, where do we go from here? Because that's our culture, and it seemingly, the church hasn't distanced itself enough from that culture, but why we're getting into this series is because Paul's about to tell us over the next eight weeks, this is the funda fundamental dynamic of a gospel culture. This is how you're different. 
than the world around you that points fingers instead of asks questions, that looks outward instead of focuses inward. And he starts in chapter 12, verse 1, with this word, therefore. And so we're going to stop. I don't know if you've been with Crossroads for a while and remember how we do epistles around here. Every fall, I like to teach through epistles, and um, it's not a narrative. We're one word in, and you're thinking we're stopping already. Welcome, everybody. All right? This is how we like to do it. It's so good. We have 66 more words to go today. All right? I cannot wait, but... Now, in all honesty, uh, we're going to break this up and kind of walk through it together, the first two verses, but this, therefore, is monumental. So I had a conversation with someone this morning, even, who has studied, got all the degrees, knows all the languages, and he said, what are you doing with that word, therefore? And I said, we're going to camp out a little bit. And he looked at me and said, you know, this might be the weightiest and the heftiest theological, therefore, in all of the New Testament. And I think I agree with him. So just, we've got to set the stage real quick because you understand that this word points back to everything Paul has written in the first 11 chapters. And if you don't understand the context of Romans, you're going to miss how emphatic and how profound what he says um, next is to all of us. So Romans was written to a pretty unique place in a unique time to a unique church. And it was written by Paul probably around 57, 58 AD. But, but specifically the cultural context of what was happening there was uh, you had an emperor, uh, Claudius, and in AD 49, he kicked all the Christians out of Rome. But it was more than that. He kicked all actually, not just the Christians, sorry, the, the Jewish people out of Rome. Kicked them all out said, I don't want you guys here. I don't like you guys here. Jewish people had been a pain in the Roman side for too long. And he just said, you're done. Leave. And to that point, primarily, the church, the Jesus-following movement of the Jewish faith had been primarily Jewish. It was kind of just Jews at that point. And so they left. And they didn't come back for five years. And then they slowly started to trickle in. And when they came back, you know what they thought? This Jewish thing called the church that followed this Jewish man named Jesus is probably dead. We got to start over. They came back in five to seven years later and they found that the church was actually there still and kind of thriving. But the problem they had was there were no Jews there. So how could that happen? And what they started to do was see that their church didn't look like them much anymore. And they had a problem with that. They came back into this place with, this, with the people that they loved, and they said, we're going to keep going with the followings of Jesus in this city, because I'm sure the movement that we started before we left was dead, and they found that it wasn't dead at all, and that caused a real big disconnect and divide in their religious gatherings. Because unlike right here, right now, when I drive by, I think, nine churches to get here on Sunday morning, they didn't have another option. You had the church in Rome. If you didn't have the church in Rome, you didn't have a church. And so they show up and they walk in the living room again at their church and they think, what are you people doing here? And that couch goes over there, don't you know? I had a friend of mine, my best friend actually in college. He was the one that stuck the last two years. Um, and he actually, I grew up with him. Uh, and I remember his family, when he graduated college, they moved cities. His dad got a new job and he had a little brother who was a surprise, we'll say the least, and he was about 12 years younger. And so my best friend came back from college to a house he didn't know, to a family that had new rhythms, with a whole other younger brother and new set of expectations and what he had growing up. His home didn't feel like his home anymore, and that was difficult. Still the same parents, still the same beliefs, but nothing really felt the same. I have a soft spot for that. 
When the Jews came back to the church in Rome and they found out that Gentiles had adapted the ways of Jesus and lived them out, same principles, a little differently, they had a very hard time with that. And so the book is written that therefore goes back to the fact that what Paul does in the first 11 chapters of Romans is really, it's kind of Paul's boot camp. He breaks you down to build you up. He starts by saying in chapter one that all of us have a messed up sense of self and we worship things over God so the world is broken because according to a lot of theologians and Augustine, when you worship the wrong things, everything breaks because you can't handle the weight of our worship or expectation. And so that's chapter one. And then two, three, and four, Paul really starts to break down Jewish privilege. He starts to say to the Jewish people, why do you think you're better than anybody else? Are you really? In the book of Romans, there are 85 questions that Paul asks. He likes that method of asking questions to prove a point. 15 of them are directly related to the Jewish people. 15 of them directly relate to the relationship between the Jewish person and their relationship with God. I'll list a few. Uh, We'll do chapter three, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Verse nine, what then? Are we any better than they are, Jews to Gentile? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jew and Greek, so Jew and Gentile are all under sin. Verse 29 in chapter 3. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And Jews said, yes, he's our God. And maybe if he has time and space then, but mostly us. Verse 31 in chapter 3. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Chapter four, what then shall we say to Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh? Has he not been found good? In verse, uh, chapter 11, verse one, I say then, God is not, has God rejected his whole people? What Paul is doing, just so you and I both know, is he's looking at a group of people and saying, you don't have the corner market on God anymore. And then he looks at a group of Roman people and says, by the way, you don't really believe this because you never thought it, but you don't either. And he talks about it. All of us need the same amount of Jesus. How all of us have been skewed towards immorality by our forefather, Adam. How all of us have sinned, passed down from generation to generation. And the solution is that we all have the same amount of Jesus. And the hope in chapter 8 is we all can live in the same amount of the Holy Spirit that gives life. It's Paul's boot camp. He's breaking people down so he can build them back up with a proper theology. And so that, therefore, is profoundly important. Because as the weight of cultural expectations, you've got to understand this church was incredibly divided way more than our church or our culture is now. You were defined in that world by your collective group. And so when Paul said, hey, it's not just you guys anymore in the Jewish faith, it's also the Romans, it's also the Gentiles, they had a really hard time with that. And so he needs 11 chapters to get that point driven home. He actually needs several more books in the New Testament, if you read Galatians 2, to get that point home. They struggled with it. They struggled hard with it. And so he says in verse 1, therefore... I exhort you, brothers and sisters, same thing here. Uh, The church in the New Testament calls us into a familial, a family relationship. And and look, we don't have time to get into all of what that means. That is a profound statement. Really good book uh, by a guy named Hellerman called When the Church Was a Family. Pick it up, read it. But it just deepens our understanding of what Paul meant in the New Testament and Jesus meant in the New Testament when he calls us to be one another's families. In our independent culture, we don't value that as much. They heavily valued it. He's saying, therefore, I exhort you as brothers and sisters. He's saying that you now are family because you have something in common that's deeper, that's richer, that's better, that's more beautiful than you have in common with your countrymen that don't love Jesus. There's a story that I think about every time I go hiking because I like to think of myself as a hiker. I've been once. I like to think of myself 
as a hiker, and you, you do too. I can see it in your eyes. You're like, man, did you walk out of REI? Yes, I did. Um, it was in, it was in, it was in Banff last year, which is beautiful up there in the Western Rockies. And, and there was this two tents and a family in one and a, and a guy in another. And in the middle of the night, this, this uh, wolf starts attacking this tent with his family. Like go, he's hungry and he's starving. And so, you know, wolves do, animals do erratic things when they're starving. And so in the middle of the night, this single man that's by himself wakes up and hears this family screaming because this wolf is attacking him. And he says, he gets out of the, the tent and he unzips it and he sees it happening. At that point, fight or flight kicks in, right? And if it was me, I would probably be as quiet as I could and get back on. Uh, no, I would try to do something I'm sure I don't know. This man ran as fast as he could towards this wolf. And he said, everything that I had, I kicked it in the side. He said, then the wolf stopped and looked at me. <laughs> and I thought, oh no. But what happened was he actually got a little afraid and he ran off. This man saved these people's lives. And in the interviews talking about afterwards, this woman said to the person interviewing him, this man and I will be family forever. We have something that connects us that can never be taken apart because of this experience we have. The, the Christian faith is based on an experience we have with Jesus and that experience alone from death to life, that experience alone being washed of our sins because Jesus died for you, that experience alone defines us deeper than anything else could. It's what unites us. That's why he says, you now aren't just acquaintances. You now are not a room full of Romans and Jews that have to live together. You now are brothers and sisters. He doesn't even say first cousins. You're brothers and sisters. Huge identification language in the New Testament. And then he says, says, I exhort you. And this word is a pivot in the book so far. So he goes from all of this really deep-seated theology around what it means to be found in Christ, around what uh, justification and sanctification is. It's really deep theology about how we see ourselves in light of what Christ has done for us. Romans is the densest theological letter in all of the New Testament. It is hefty and it is great. And he's unpacking huge concepts that define us going forward. But right here, right now, he's moving away from thought to action in his book. And he says, I exist exhort you. So all of this stuff, this knowledge bomb that I dropped on you, I didn't stop at chapter 11. Chapter 12 is important because knowledge without action isn't a full understanding of what you think you know in the first place. In the Jewish faith, you couldn't say you knew something until you actually acted on what you knew. I say it all the time that I read all the books on being a parent before it became a parent. And if you would have asked me, Charlie, are you ready to be a parent? I'd say, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I got it down. And then you know what happened? I had a kid. <laughs> and I realized that those books didn't do a whole lot because my kids didn't abide by the contract stipulated in the book. <laughs> my level of knowledge is deeper and more profound because now I actually have to live out these principles that I've read about. And so what Paul is doing is saying, hey, you can't just have right doctrine, orthodoxy, you have to have right practice, orthopraxy for the big theological terms. Those two are inherently and always linked. Any church, any religious system, any follower of Jesus that says, I can believe this and it doesn't tie to how I live out my life doesn't really believe what they're talking about then. I like what one commentator said, he said, theology in isolation promotes a barren intellectualism Ethics apart from a theological base is important to achieve goals. And what I love about this word exhort here, man, Paul is disappointed in his people. He wants a unity here, and he's not getting it. And make no mistake about it, he is 
in some ways, writing this, in all ways, writing this so that these people might live into the calling of Jesus better. That's why Paul wrote most of his epistles. He sees a problem and he says, hey guys, I'm gonna write to you, grace, 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 grace. What are you thinking? Stop doing what you're doing. And so he finally gets to this point and that word exhort, it's a beautiful word. Some writers will say it's one of the kindest, most gentlest words in the New Testament because it doesn't mean I'm yelling at you. It doesn't mean I'm mad at you. It doesn't mean I'm shaming you. That word literally comes from the Greek word where we see the Holy Spirit described in John. It means I'm coming alongside of you and it's this play between I am begging you on one hand and I'm directing you on the other. It's kind of between both those. It's Paul coming alongside people he loves, his brothers and sisters, and saying, hey man, with everything that's in me, please, please, please do this. I promise it's good for you. It's like a pastoral heart, you know? It's like when your kids get old enough where you can't scare them anymore, they've realized the key is that you really have no power whatsoever. And, and so when they're older and you sit down with them and you realize that I can't force you to do anything, but, but please do this because I love you so much. That's what Paul's doing here. So he says, hey, here's how we should think of each other in light of the gospel. And hey, take this next section and take it to heart because we need to live like this because our culture is different than the divided culture of Rome in the first century. They kicked out a whole group of people because they didn't like him. This is how gospel communities act. He said, I exhort you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as sacrifices, alive, holy, and pleasing, which is your reasonable acts of service. So what's really important about this text, what's really important about what's next, is Paul says, I'm going to ask you to do something here, and this is the, this is the motive behind the action, is by the mercies of God. What's really important, if you take one thing away today, this has got to be it. Well, there's a couple more really good ones coming up. Stay tuned. Um, but he says that our motivation for the exhortation, our motivation for the right living in that's based upon our right doctrine, our exhortation is based not on a worthiness, but on the mercies of God. Morality and ethics are found in a couple different ways, right? You have the morality that says, I'm going to live a certain way so that I don't get something, so that I don't get in trouble. In Flower Mound, I'm not going to lie to you guys, I drive the speed limit, not because I really want to. It's because Flower Mound cops are everywhere. I drive the speed limit because I don't want another ticket. And so there's a way to, to be moral, but with the wrong motive, because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> there's also a way to be moral because I want to get something that's good. It's a motivation that says, man, it's kind of egocentric and, and it's kind of self-motivated by saying, I'm going to live a certain way so that my reward is greater. Every night, every single night now, my kiddo, who's four, asks, we, we're having a hard time with her eating dinner. For some reason, it's just not going very well. And every single night, we say, hey, here's what you have to eat. This is going to be good for you. I'm your dad. Please do this, right? And then she laughs at me. But um, every night, she'll look at us. She'll slide her plate across the table. And she'll say, hey, dad, did I eat a good dinner? And it's not because she wants to show me she's obedient. It's not because she knows the richness of my mercies to her as I do things like, you know, allow her to live and pay for her existence and coach her soccer team. It's none of that. The next question is always, if I say, yeah, you had a great dinner, it's always, 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 well, then can I have some candy? Every single night, right? And so my daughter's actions right now in this current stage of life around dinner are based on, I can get something really good here. And that's not necessarily the best way to live out a life, a, a moral or an ethical life. When Paul says, I want you to do something, he bases it in the idea that something's already been done for us. It's fundamentally important because this is what differentiates 
our faith from most others in the world. The Christian life is lived from God's mercy, not for it. Hugely profound. One theologian said in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. So up front, we have to set the stage when we call action into place, that our actions are a resounding thank you to God who already acted on our behalf to save, to redeem, and to restore. And that's so difficult because in a culture of meritocracy, that's not why we do what we do. Like this is a profoundly different way we're called to live than the world around us. It might look the same. You might not speed, but the difference is that God is the difference. The difference is we understand the motivation of God's mercy that motivates us to act in a way that lives into the ways of Jesus. And why that's important is because if mercy is not your motivation, then your, your sanctification won't be sustainable. He's calling us to a life of ethics, a life of following Jesus. And if my mercy is myself, what happens if I don't get what I want? If my mercy is others, what happens if they go somewhere? If, if mercy isn't our motivation to live into the Christian life, is if what God did for us isn't enough to say, man, this good God wants what's best for me, he's already proven it. If that's not it, then over time, your sanctification is not sustainable. And, and the kinder side to say that is, man, if you're having a hard time, if you're having a hard time living in the ways of Jesus, come talk to me and I'll show you what he did for you and why it's so beautiful. If you're having a hard time living in the ways of Jesus, let me redefine how much he loves you. And might that motivate you to press further into the goodness of God? It's not one built off shame. It's one built off grace, mercy, and abounding love for you. Know that. And in a culture of meritocracy, I think that is one of the most beautiful things we can say to all people who want to follow Jesus. And so Paul says, because of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, alive, holy, and pleasing I love that idea of, of bodies and sacrifice. It meant something in the first century world. Bodies simply just means that all of you is presented. In the first century world, and kind of even now, they were driven by Platonism. So Plato had this idea of forms and shadows. Bodies are bad. And so Paul's speaking into that culture, saying bodies aren't bad because your life isn't going to begin when your body ends. What you're going to do, your spiritual act of mercy and service is going to start right here, right now with your physical body. We cannot detangle the physicality from the spirituality God created both and said they both will feed off of one another. So what he's saying is that your act of, my, my charge to you, my exhortation to you to have reasonable acts of service begins with your body right here, right now. It takes all of you is what he's saying. It takes all of you to live out the ways of Jesus. That's what God is calling you into. Not just a one day, but two days, how we say it around here over and over and over again. So one, it's fully inclusive, and two, it's really intimate. In, in that world, they were <laughs> very familiar with sacrifice, especially in the Jewish context. You would take your lamb or your goat or your pigeon or pick your animal, and you'd go to the temple one or two or three times a day, but depending upon how much you sinned that day, and you'd sacrifice it. But the problem was always you sacrifice something that was yours, but wasn't you. It's always harder to sacrifice you. And so what this does, what this language does, is it, it makes the plea of Paul, the exhortation to live a certain way, more personal than it's ever been before. Jesus is saying, take you, all of you, not something else, because Jesus gave all of him for us. It narrows the distance between the sacrificer and the sacrifice. It's a beautiful plea that Paul says that you might take all of yourself because of God's mercies and live into this new ethic I'm giving you that's countercultural from where you're living now. He says this is going to be your reasonable act of service. 
I want to touch on this just for one second. And some, lots of translations have spiritual act of worship or true and proper worship. I know NIV does. I don't love that translation being worship there. The Greek word actually is where we get our word logic from. And so really what it means is your spiritual act of, of service, if you want to put it like that more. In, in, in that day, it probably meant worship in, in uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. But now we so narrowly define worship in our churches as just what you do when a band is playing, Right? Hands up, hands down, hands in your pocket, depends on the church, everybody. We define worship so specifically now. I think what this word is getting at isn't necessarily literally the three songs and a prayer that you're going to have every Sunday, but how we live our life in response to what we know to be the mercy of God. And there's two ways to interpret that word. One is reasonably, which means that it's the only reasonable or rational act if you understand what Jesus did for you. It's the only option you have. I'm a Cowboy fan. It is reasonable for me to believe they will lose every game. I have been a fan my entire life. That is the only logical response to this mess that we have built in the city and call it a football team, okay? That's right, somebody finally is here. All right, um, talk about the Cowboys, you get some amens. That's all I want, my little amen count. I get bonuses, right? Um, I like what uh, an older theologian said. Um, he said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am a rational being, so I must praise God. I think that's what we're called into. If you fully understand what Jesus did, and then the second way you can interpret this word is rational, uh, which just means that our worship is an intelligent worship. So even when we're singing, it's not we empty our minds of thoughts. It, worship is an expressive way to curate a thankfulness for who God is and what he's done. It's always challenging us intellectually because God gave us an intellect. And so it's growing that ability to intellectually praise a God who is smarter than you, if you can even believe that, you know? And so when we talk about this phrasing, this spiritual act of worship, what he's saying is really that our lives are fully given to God because we understand his mercies and this is what we do continually in the community of God. In a divided, a super divided culture, what he's saying is that worship or service is your way forward because worship and service realigns our perspective around something that's not us and you can never have unity if your perspective only rests on you. And so he's saying, let's begin here. Therefore, all the stuff I said, I'm going to ask you to do something, but it's because of God's mercy. And the thing I'm going to ask you to do is consistently serve one another, something bigger than you because you're united under something better than you, what Jesus did for you. This is how he begins. Our culture is different. We no longer will be divided. We will be united because Jesus. You will give all of yourself to one another because Jesus. And you will do these things, not because you feel like you have to, but because you want to, because Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of our motivation in the church. And, and this is what he starts with. We're going to be in this thing for eight weeks and several chapters. There's going to be a, a lot of calls to action, but he fundamentally and primarily begins with the most important thing. Your motivation matters. And everything I ask of you after this, and again, there's going to be a lot. Everything I ask, how you love and how you serve and how you treat outsiders and how you respond to injustice and evil with peace, everything I ask is based on this one phrase, by the mercies of God, Give your whole life to reasonable acts of service, worship to one another. This is our response. Everything falls under the umbrella. And then he's going to go on to say, a little more specifically, this is how you do it. Don't be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My favorite part of this is that when Paul's trying to transform a church, you know where he begins? With you. 
with me. <laughs> that sounded bad. With you, not me, with me, right? He starts with the individual. And, and he calls out two things that are really important that you need to recognize happen all the time. We are constantly being conformed into the image of something in our world. All the time. That word conform there in the Greek is actually in the passive. Some say it's in the middle, some say it's in the passive. Greek verbs have three different uh, voices to them. You have active, you have passive, you have middle. Active says, hey, I did this thing, like, you know, I cooked bread. Um, Or passive is more like this thing was done to me, and middle is kind of something in the middle there. Uh, Like, there there was a a thing that formed me that I participated in, and and I didn't participate in at the same time. And so when it comes to this verb, this word conform, he's literally saying there's a part of this that you're doing on purpose and there's a part of this that you don't realize is being done to you. You are conforming to this world because you really like it and also because you don't understand the ways that you're being shaped and formed by the world around you. There are things I really like about the world I live in, like we really value comfort in the flow I don't hate it, you know? We really value family. I love that. We really value certain things and I press into those things. And then there are ways that I'm being conformed to things I thought I didn't like and now I love. About four years ago, maybe five, I don't know, it all blends together. There's a car commercial that came out. If you guys remember this, I think all of you sent it to me. At this point, I had no kids and I was living in East Dallas and life was good. And um, there's a car commercial and basically it was these single young people like, we're never gonna get married. And then they got married. We're never going to have kids. And then they had kids. We're never going to move to the suburbs. And then they moved to the suburbs. And I've checked off all those boxes. Thank you very much. Except for one, we're never going to get a minivan. And it was a minivan ad. You know, this is what you guys sent me. It's the idea that you don't know it yet, but you're being conformed by the people you're around. I've been in the staff for 14 years. I love every bit of it. I'm becoming like more and more the values of the suburban life. Yay. You know, I love it. It's great. We are being conformed whether you know it or not. And some of that we press into because we love it and other parts happen to us. You have to recognize that. You have to recognize how we're being formed. And he says, instead of being conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I love what he says in Colossians 2.8, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through empty and deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. This is what he's calling out when he says conform. And that just means we've got to sit down and have a hard conversation with ourselves, And you've got to look a little inward and say, where am I conforming to things that might not be the gospel? What things do I hold tighter than I hold Jesus? Where, where am I pursuing things actively? And then where have I been, been shaped? And you can only do that by looking back and taking a big picture approach. That same kid I mentioned that I roomed with in college every year on New Year's Eve, instead of going out and having a good time, he would, even to this day, he stays home, he opens a good bottle of wine, and he reads through his journals over the last year. And he sees how he's changed. He sees how God lived into his promises and how God answered prayers, and he sees places that he still needs prayers answered for. He takes a big picture approach and says, where do I not see that I'm being conformed? That's why community is extremely valuable. Because oftentimes we need those around us to say, hey, you're moving into this and you need to watch out. And if you do life alone, you won't see it because others won't see it in you. So he says, don't be conformed. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love this idea of being transformed. It means that you're going somewhere. It means that you're growing. At CBC, we say it's one of our values. Growing people change. We mean it. I don't want you to be the same person today that you are in 10 years. That's a sad, sad thing. That means you're not learning or growing your ability to see the goodness of God. 
There's a fourth century theologian named Gregory of Nyssa, and he said, I love this, sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. I love that idea because it has profound implications on are we pursuing God, running after God, or are we not pursuing God or running after God? Dallas Willard is a theologian, and he was a professor for a long time, and he's written all the books, and you should read them all. He has a a metric of transformation that he calls the golden triangle of transformation. I think we have a graphic. It's one of my favorites, because you got to define transformation. What does it mean? Does it mean I read my Bible five minutes more today than yesterday? How does transformation happens. And I like his metric for it. He's going to say that bottom left, there's ordinary events of life or temptations. This is like vivification and mortification kind of language. We put to death things so that things might live in us. This is gospel 101. Jesus says, hey, you will deny yourself daily so you can make room for my things because some of my things don't come as naturally to you. Grace is always harder than anger for me. And so he says, you got to kill some things so that the good things might grow. If you work in the garden, you know this is to be true. If you follow Marie Kondo, she talks about it, right? Things that don't cause you joy, what do you do? Kill the sweater, okay? It's stopping joy from your life. So what Willard says and what the scriptures say is that all these everyday events, he would say like James 1 temptations or just the turbulence in life causes us, it's a starting place for us to grow. You have to find and isolate places where we are making room for. We are changing so that we might allow space for the flourishing of God in our life. And then the one directly to the right of that, a plan, discipline to put on a new heart. We talk about a spiritual practice or discipline every single January. We have it coming up in January. It's on hospitality this year. But whether it's Sabbath or fasting or feasting or silence or solitude or prayer or reading your Bible more, the question is, you don't grow if you're not intentional about growth. I'm not going to get a six-pack if I never go to the gym. I've tried for years, everybody. And so the question is, Willard's going to say, man, we need places, temptations and trials and tribulations because it's out of conflict that we grow and also intentional ways that we are trying to grow into the ways of Jesus. Otherwise you won't. And then finally, the actions of the Holy Spirit, which, which basically just means that you need to know that you can try as hard as you want and you can have as hard a life as possible, but we grow because the Spirit is with us. Literally in the Greek, that word transform is in the passive tense, which means that he's saying that it's something that happens to us as the Spirit acts in us. I like what one commentator said, the surrender of life is the believer's responsibility, but the transformation of life is God's. So we ask ourselves, how do we move forward as a community that's different than the world around us? Well, we start by saying that our life is based on the mercy of God. And because of that, I give all of my life to the ways and rhythms of Jesus, to the community of Christ. And I can only do that if I stop looking outside and start looking inside. How do we do that? The first thing he says in this four-chapter arc where he talks about ethics in the New Testament church, that unity that they don't have, that they desperately need, the first thing he says is you stop conforming to the good things of the world in place of the better things of Jesus. You start growing. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by changing literally how you think about the world around you. So let me read the whole thing together. Therefore, I exhort, you, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. He's saying this is our way forward every day. So everywhere we go, 
we can know what God wants us to do. He, he makes this case that we will begin to live out the gospel culture in our midst when we begin to understand what it is to die a little bit more to self and allow God to change us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In, in a world insistent, and this is the difference, and this is what he's writing to in this culture where you had Jews and Gentiles pointing fingers at one another where they said, you're the problem and you're the problem and move the couch back, dang it, I've asked three times. This is what he says in a world insistent on looking outward as followers of Jesus, our way forward begins by looking at, within. In, in a gospel culture, change begins within. And we need to hear that in this culture right now when I feel like more and more what we're doing is pointing fingers instead of asking tough questions internally. The way we begin to change the world around us is as Jesus changes us. It doesn't mean that we don't call out bad. It doesn't mean that we don't ask our friends and neighbors to change. We do all those things, but that's not where we start. It doesn't mean we don't have accountability. We do, and we need it, and I need it. Where we begin is we look inward before we look outward. This is the case that Paul is making that differentiates a gospel culture from all the other cultures. We've said it before. The Bible is not a microscope for the sin of others, but a mirror for our souls. I think, I think maybe as the church, we've lost some influence because we use our Bibles too quickly as a battering ram for the lives of others rather than a barometer for our own Christ-likeness. It's why we pray every single Sunday that the move of the Spirit is inward towards conviction, not outward towards critique. That's what we're about here. And as God begins to change us individually, we watch that change radically grow because you know what's beautiful? Seeing God change lives. You know what's beautiful? Seeing God take somebody from angry to kind. You know what's beautiful? Seeing God take somebody from impatient to patient. You know what's beautiful? Seeing God take somebody from unloving to loving. You know what's beautiful? Seeing God work on people in such a way where they have so much radical grace, it differentiates them from the yelling and screaming that our culture is so good at. And as we begin to be changed, you know what's beautiful? Is people see that our God's worth worshiping. Paul says this is where we begin as a gospel community. And so where we go from here, I think, man, you can do some research on the Willard Triangle of Transformation, but maybe ask yourself, am I, am I killing things so that Christ might thrive, you know, in my life? Am, am I allowing space for the Holy Spirit to work? Am I just allowing space? So the pastors went to a retreat. Retreat, it was a, uh, a conference in Portland uh, a couple weeks ago, and the worship was incredible. It was, it was just incredible. It was 600 pastors that usually don't get to worship without having to preach right beforehand, which kind of clouds your mind a little bit because I'm trying to worship. I'm like, man, this section is not done yet. You know, I'm, I'm going back and forth. Like, am I going to say this? How many people am I going to offend? Hopefully all of them. That means I did my job right. Like all these things are running through my head. And for one time, 600 pastors got together and we didn't have that weight on us. And so the worship was incredible. <laughs> people just like yelled, you know? And, uh, and it was funny, we talked about it as a team a little bit, but what the worship pastor did was he allowed space in, and what the preacher did was allow space in the service just for them to sit with nothing happening and respond to the Holy Spirit. We might try and work some of that in here. It's going to freak you out a little bit. We'd be like, are things broken? Is everybody okay? But how do we, how are we responding to the invitation of the Holy Spirit every day? Because he's growing you. It's not just your problem, <laughs> God is actively involved in your transformation. Know that and believe that and ask him to help you in that because you can't do without him. And then finally, it just might be where are your practices where you're intentionally being formed by Christ? Whether that's prayer or Bible reading, those are the two big ones that we focus on in this culture. Whether that's fasting or feasting or whether that's Sabbath or fill in the blank, there's a lot of them. Hospitality in January we'll talk about, but 
Where are you doing one of those three things? How are they all coming together? Which one do we need to work on together, individually, as a group, as a community? Because when we do those things, what we start to see is what Paul wants us to see. That because God has been so good, we are ever more changing into the image of a God who's better than the current context and culture we have. There was a, a guy who, I grew up with his family actually here. His kids were in the youth group and they moved away and they came back a couple of years ago. And I remember sitting right up there and he comes up to me and he said, hey man, good to see you again. Uh, we started chatting a bit. And I said, how's work? He said, it's not good. I said, why is it not good? He said, I got this guy I work with and I, he's really annoying. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I don't know what that's like. I work at Crossroads. Um, and I said, man, that, that's so hard. I'm sorry. It sounds like a you problem. And he said, no, I don't think you understand. This guy's really, really annoying. And I think this is kind of the Holy Spirit working in and through me. This is not Chuck. And I said, yeah, again, sounds like a you problem. And he said, no, Charlie, you don't understand. This man is incredibly annoying and he's not going to change and he won't change for me. And I said, I know it sounds like a you problem. <laughs> and he walked away probably pretty happy with me. And uh, the next day he emailed me. He said, hey, man, I just really appreciate that. I feel like that's what I need to hear. I feel like God was speaking to me, asking me where can I change before I ask this other person to change. It's a beautiful picture of, I think, what the community of God is calling us all to do. And that's one thing that I really love about this church. We're an independent Bible church, which means that we're not primarily Baptist. It's Texas. We're primarily Baptist, but we are also other things. I came from a Methodist background. We have people that were Anglicans, and they were Catholic, and they were Baptist, and they were independent Bible, and they were assemblies of God. We have all of these different kinds of faith traditions, just like the first century church coming together asking the question, how do we live together so that people might see the beauty of God? How is this space different than the other spaces? And I think where it begins is for all of us. Say, how is God changing me so that he might see the beauty of Jesus? Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're a God that doesn't want us to stay where we're at. That you participate in transformation with us as you lead and guide that process. I'm thankful that you called us to our community. It's better than individualism and isolation. I'm, thank you. I'm thankful that we are called to put others' needs above our own that stops me from worshiping myself, which is really easy to do. So as we begin this journey in this series towards why the Christian community is different, might it begin by asking how we're changed by the Spirit of God? Might it begin by us asking how we are changed because of the mercy of Jesus? So Holy Spirit, as we leave this place this week, show us where you're changing us. Give us time that we might allow the Holy Spirit to work and we might reflect on that work. And give us people that might encourage action towards Christ-likeness so that we might, as a community, say, this is what God is doing. And look how good he is. We pray these things in his name. Amen.